Well, it's good to see everybody tonight, including folks we hadn't seen in a while. So if you haven't been with us for a while, what we're doing right now, instead of a verse-by-verse study through a particular book of the Bible, we're looking at uh, some of the books of the Bible that Christians don't know much about. Books that we may know they're in the Bible. Maybe we've read them once or twice. A lot of us probably haven't even done that. But if someone... Put, a, put us under a, a, a hot light and said, okay, what is the book of Amos about? We just say, uh, don't know. Don't know. So we, we've, looked at, we've looked at Ecclesiastes and we've looked at uh, Joel and Hosea, and tonight we're going to look at Amos. We're going to do it in two separate weeks. So Lord willing, next Wednesday we'll do the back half of the book. And I have to say, I have a soft spot in my heart for Amos, and I doubt there's many people on earth that can say that. Uh, the reason is, oh, about 15 years ago, I was... I was working on a degree, a seminary degree, and uh, I was trying to get finished as quick as I could because we had little kids and I just didn't want to stretch this out. Uh, I was pastoring a church and, and so I wanted to get done as quick as possible. So I, I just looked online for any classes they were offering any, on anything at all, just to get, get the degree out of the way. And I saw that they were giving a class on Amos in Birmingham. And it was like, you go up for a week, you attend lectures all day, you write papers, and you're done. And I thought, well, if I can find a cheap flight, I'll take it. And I could. So I did. Stayed in a little ratty hotel. And um, I, it's kind of funny. I, I, I went there and, well, you don't need to hear this story. But, but before that time, I have to admit, I didn't really like the prophetic books of the Bible. All, they, all that I knew about the prophetic books, and the only time I ever preached on them or thought about them was at Christmas time when I would preach, you know, Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, or Isaiah 7, the virgin shall give birth, or, you know, maybe even at Easter in Isaiah 53 and, and that great prophecy of the crucifixion. And there were two or three other passages, you know, the, the valley of the dry bones in Ezekiel, I like that one, and Jeremiah had a couple of promises that I really enjoyed, but otherwise I just... They just seemed like cranky old guys, and I didn't, I didn't think they had much to say that, that uh, meant much to me. And Amos especially. Amos, Amos was, seemed like the crankiest of all of them. It was just an angry old man. And uh, every year when I'd read through the Bible, I'd just, I'd just rip through Amos and those other books as fast as I could, just getting them out of the way. And when I took that class, we had a very good professor and all these other guys from around the South gathered and, and talking this over. And it just opened my eyes to what the prophets were all about. Not just Amos, but all the prophetic books. It helped me understand what they were there for. And this is, this is one way to look at it. Imagine you live in a, a land that has been full of drought, that has been drought-stricken for years and you know that the city water source or the local water source is right at the bottom. The reservoir or wherever the, the, the community gets its water is just down at the bottom of the barrel. But nobody else knows. Nobody else cares. And all day long you see people wasting water left and right. You go by and your neighbor's got their hose just running in the yard. It's not even watering anything, just running. Uh, somebody's opened a, a, a fire hydrant and it's just flooding the streets. And, you go down, uh, you go around a block and you see guys standing out in the middle of a dry field smoking cigarettes. 
And it just makes you angry because you know, okay, one of the two things is going to happen. Either somebody's going to burn the whole town down, or we're going to run out of water and we're all going to die of thirst. But nobody seems to care. Would you be upset about that? Yes, you would. You would do your best. You would do whatever you had to do to get people's attention. You'd write it on the city water tower. You'd put up signs. You'd Whatever, it had to do, whatever you had to do, you'd attend every city council meeting. Uh, you would do whatever you had to do to get people's attention. And that's what the prophets were. The prophets were men and women, but in, in the scriptures, the ones who wrote books happened to be men. The, the prophets were men and women who knew that the people of God had strayed away from God and they didn't seem to care. And it drove them crazy because people were just going blithely through life drifting further away from God, taking the nation further away from God and into destruction, and nobody was doing anything about it. Not the king, not the priests, not the prophets, not, not anybody. And so Amos is one of those prophets. You know, whenever you read a prophetic book, as I've said to you before, a lot of the things they're going to say, they're saying to Israel, they're not saying them directly to us, but you have to say, okay, how much of what Israel was doing are we doing? So how much of the things that Amos would said to Israel would he say to us today? And if not exactly the same thing, what version of that would he say to us? How much of that are we guilty of? So a couple of questions to start with. Who was Amos? Amos describes himself as, I'm not a prophet. Later on when you get to chapter 7, we'll look at that next week. He says, I'm not a prophet, I'm a shepherd, and I'm a fig picker. So he was a blue-collar guy, and God, he, he was from the southern kingdom, Judah, from a place called Tekoa, which is south of Jerusalem, um, and God just called him to go to the northern kingdom, to Israel. And Israel at this point was experiencing a boom time. They were, they were going through good days. Judah in the south wasn't. So the way I picture it, one way to wrap my mind around this is I imagine a guy in overalls and work boots who kind of smells like sheep. He's walking down the streets of River Oaks or the Galleria or wherever you want to name, and everybody there is just looking at him like, where, who are you and where did you come from? And he just stands on a street corner and starts preaching, and people think he's nuts. All these people in their nice cars and their, and their beautiful clothes and their, their exquisite lifestyles. What does he have to say to us? That, that's Amos. Amos, just imagine a guy off the, the graveyard shift, a blue-collar man just goes into the rich part of town and starts preaching, and that's who Amos was. The book is about the fact that uh, you can't fool God. I, I think that is the ultimate way to sum up the book of Amos. Because the, the nation of Israel, as I said, was going through good times. There, we talked two weeks ago when we looked at Hosea. Uh, the king at the time was Jeroboam II. The nation had won some battles, so the, the borders were larger. The, the land was larger than it had been at any time since Solomon. They didn't have any big enemies on the horizon that they could see. Of course, God knew what was coming. And they were wealthy. You walk down the streets of Samaria, which was the capital city, and you saw all these signs of wealth. You saw these fancy houses. You saw people who were dressed well. It, it hid the, the state of the, of the everyday person, but you got the impression that things were good. And if things are going so well for us, it must be because God approves of us. And if God approves of us, it must be because we're living right. And so the whole point of the book of Amos is these outward signs of blessing don't mean that God is happy with you. 
Judgment's coming because you're not living according to the will of God. So for Christians, you read the book of Amos and it's a reminder that you can be very religious because the Israelites at that time were, were very faithful about offering their sacrifices. They were very religious. Of course, not in the way God wanted them to be, but still, they were very religious, they were very successful, and those things aren't what make a life pleasing to God. You can be highly religious, you can be very successful, and still not be in the will of God. It's the condition of your heart, it's how you treat other people that is the real test. Jesus said there's, there's two commandments. Everything else is summed up into those two. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So let's just walk through the first half of Amos. We won't read every verse, but I want to show you several things just to kind of sum up the message of the book. So let's start with the beginning of the book. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Interesting, you know, this is why it's hard for us to pin down the exact date that this book was written, because Uzziah and Jeroboam both reigned a long, long time. They were those rare kings that reigned for decades. And when it says two years before the earthquake, frankly, we don't know what earthquake he's talking about. Obviously, the people who first read this did, because it was big news at the time. But it's been, you know, nearly 3,000 years. There have been a few earthquakes since then. So we can't really pin this down, although we think it was around 760 B.C. Verse 2, And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. So the Lord roars from Zion. Remember, where was the temple? Where was Zion? Zion was in Jerusalem. That's the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Uh, it's still there today, although there's no temple on it. There's, a, there's a, a mosque instead. But it's interesting, he's up north where they don't believe in going down south to the temple anymore. They've built their own temples. And he's saying, no, God's still where he said he was going to be. He's still in Jerusalem. And from there, he is roaring at you. And when he says the top of Carmel withers, Carmel is Mount Carmel. You might know from the Bible, that's where Elijah uh, stood off against the, the prophets of Baal and brought fire down from heaven, one of my favorite stories. Um, but it, in the time of Amos and even today, that's a, that's a spot that's pretty near the coast. If you ever heard of the Israelite, Israeli city of Haifa, it's real near there. If you ever wanted to go to Mount Carmel, you would go to Haifa and stay in a hotel and just take a short drive. So it was a place, it was a nice place. It was fertile, it was beautiful. And he's saying, God's voice makes the top of Mount Carmel wither. The prettiest place in your land just goes to pieces when God's judge. He, so he's announcing judgment, essentially. Now listen, he begins his sermon, his first sermon in verse 3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden, and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir. Now this is what makes reading the prophets hard, is there's all these names, place names that we can't pronounce, that we don't understand, that we don't know where they're from. But I'll give you a little hint. Spend about $15 or $20 on a good Bible dictionary and you can find out what all these things are. Or you can just Google them. 
and it's there. I mean, use a search engine, whichever search engine you prefer, and you can find articles on all this stuff, and it's worth the time. Because as you walk through chapters one and two, and I won't read the whole thing, but you see, this is a sermon. This is a seven-point sermon, actually an eight-point. Aren't you glad I don't do eight-point sermons? That's another issue. But you see, he does the same thing. For three transgressions of blank, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And he starts with Damascus. Damascus, some of y'all know this. Damascus is the capital of what country? Syria. Syria. So Syria is right there to the northeast of Israel. It borders Israel. There's always been conflict, still is, between those two countries. And he's saying, y'all, God says he's going to pour out judgment on Syria. Now you can imagine this rough-hewn prophet, this country boy, comes into the city and a crowd gathers probably out of curiosity. And when he starts preaching judgment on Syria, you can imagine they're all saying, amen, preach it. Well, we like this redneck. He's good. And then he goes, and by the way, he, he mentions several things. He, he's, he's angry at, at, uh, at Syria for the things they've done to Israel. When he says they threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron, Gilead was part of Israel. They've, they've invaded that part of your country and they've punished people there. They've oppressed people there. I'll send a fire on the house of Hazael. That was one of their kings of past days. Ben-Hadad was another. So, you know, all of this is stuff that people at that time would have said, yes, amen, bring on judgment, Lord. Those people have it coming. And then he moves on to Gaza, which is the capital of the Philistines, and then on to Tyre, and then Edom, and Ammon, and, uh, and, and Rabbah, and Moab in chapter 2. And, and so he's just, with each one, you can, you can hear the amens getting louder. Because what he's doing is he's making a circle around the nations that border Israel. And he's including every single one and saying, they're getting judgment, they're getting judgment, they're going to be punished, they're going to be put under the, under the hand of God. And so people are getting more and more excited, we can imagine. And then in, in verse 4, he says, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Judah and for four. Now hold on. Now he's talking about their fellow Jews to the south. Those are two separate countries. They've been separate for a couple of centuries now, but they're still bound by blood, right? But there's rivalry oftentimes between those two nations, between Israel and Judah. There's, you know, they should be together. They're not. And so I imagine the Israelites like this too. Yeah, those... Those Judahites down there, they haven't been acting right. We're the true people of God. He says, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept His statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. And you know, it wasn't that much long, it wasn't that far in the future, after Amos' life, certainly, but it wasn't that much further in the future that that happened to Judah when Babylon invaded and destroyed the city, burned the city with fire, including the temple. Now, thus far, Amos has mentioned seven countries. You're probably aware of this, and if you're not, I'll tell you, in the ancient world, seven was considered the number of completion. Once you got to seven, you quit. And so I imagine everybody said, man, that is, the, that is a great sermon. You, did a, you don't look like much, but you did a great job. They thought it was over, but he's not done. He's got one more country to talk about. This is, this is masterful stuff for somebody that's not a professional speaker. 
Verse 6, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And I'm sure all the amens stopped at that point. Because he'd been talking about their enemies, but now he was talking about them. Yes. I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 6. Yeah. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. So right there, he's talking about oppressing, oppressing the poor. He's talking about, yes, you've gotten wealthy, Israel, but it's just a minority of you who are benefiting from that wealth. The people who are already doing well, now they're doing twice as well, and everybody else is doing worse than they were before. So a certain segment of society had hoarded all the wealth to themselves. And wealth is not a bad thing. You understand in Scripture, there are, there are certain people that we see God raises up and, and gives them wealth. You think about Abraham, you think about Solomon, you can come up with other examples. So wealth in itself is not a bad thing, but with wealth comes great responsibility. And you have to understand that biblically speaking, the more blessed you are financially, the more God holds you accountable for what you do with that wealth. And are you generous? And are you looking for an opportunity to help others? And are you careful not to take advantage of your higher status in such a way that keeps others down? You see, because that's the way the world works, but it shouldn't be the way that uh, the kingdom of God works. I, I read a story a while back about Andrew Carnegie. I think a lot of us have heard of him. He was the big steel uh, mogul back in the late 1800s. Andrew Carnegie was one of the richest men on earth at the time. And he felt guilty about his wealth. He came up poor. And so what he did was he donated money. He became one of the great philanthropists, Carnegie Hall, right? I read somewhere once he he built something like 3,000 libraries across the United States. Named them all after himself, of course, but still, he built all these libraries. And somebody interviewed one of his workers once uh, in his steel factories and said, what do you think about your boss? And they said, well, I wish he, instead of building libraries, I wish he'd pay us enough that we could live on it. And, you know, they noted that the average worker for Carnegie died in their middle 40s. Because not only were their working conditions so bad, they got paid so little they had to live in bad conditions and it was just a cycle that they, they went through workers left and right. It was just, it just didn't, literally didn't pay to work for the man. Um, so this is what we're talking about. You don't have to be a crook to be somebody who tramples on the head of the poor. You have to watch out for your responsibilities. He then goes on and says in verse 7, A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. He's talking there about sexual sin and immorality in the land. That was going on. Not surprising. Not surprising that that men are abusing women in a country where everyone thinks everyone's righteous. They just take it for granted because we're Jews, because we have the blood of Abraham in us. You know, God approves of us. So, you know, who cares if I do some stuff behind closed doors? Nobody is going to worry about that. I'm offering my sacrifices. Everything's fine. And that's the third thing he mentions in verse 8. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So there he's talking about false worship. 
When he says they lay down beside every altar, it sounds like, oh, well, goodness, they're, they're so holy, they, they go to sleep in the temple because they want to wake up and give their sacrifice in the morning. But they're laying down on, on coats that they've stolen from poorer people who borrowed money from them, which is a violation of the law of Moses. You know, in the, in the, old, in the law of Moses, if somebody borrowed money from you and you said, okay, I need some collateral, you couldn't take their coat. God, God declared it. You can't take their coat because otherwise they're going to be cold. Take something else, something they don't need to stay warm. Well, Amos says, you're, you're violating that. You're, you're taking the livelihood of others and then thinking you're righteous because of your religious activities. Okay? So, then he goes on in verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 9. Yeah, verse 9. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. What's he talking about there? Remember when the Israelites, in the time of Moses, when they got to the promised land and they hadn't crossed the Jordan yet, and they sent people, spies across, to see what it was like over there, and they came back and they said, oh, it's a beautiful land, but the people there are way taller than us, so we'll never be able to beat these guys. And God said, remember, when you finally crossed the river, I killed them all. I mean, I drove them out. You won every battle when you trusted in me. Verse 10, also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. So there he's talking about the Exodus. Verse 11, and I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? We probably all know what prophets are. What are Nazarites? Nazarite, this was a, a vow you could take, or you could tell your son to take, in which you said, I'm going to devote my life to God. I'm going to be completely given over to Him. And that means I'll never cut my hair, I will never drink alcohol, and I'll never touch anything dead. So it was a way of staying holy. You know who the most famous Nazarite in the Bible is? Samson, yeah. You know why he lost his strength? He, he broke all three, that's right. He touched a dead lion, he got drunk, and then he let Delilah cut his hair. So uh, he's saying, I, I've given you people like this. I've given you people as examples, as spiritual leaders. Verse 12, but you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. So what he's saying is, I gave you spiritual leadership and you discouraged them. You led them astray. Your spiritual leaders have gone the wrong direction, and you're accountable for that. And so, you know, when we read things like this, we always have to ask ourselves, what is, obviously we don't have Nazarites anymore, but we have people called to ministry. Are we encouraging that? Are we building those people up? Are we equipping them? We don't have prophets anymore, but God has His Word. He's got people who teach His Word. Are we listening to them? It's not enough to just look around and say, oh man, we got a church on every corner and they're big, beautiful churches and some of them are pretty full. That doesn't, that's not the sign. The question is, are we, are we being faithful to God in America today? Or is there a culture of moral compromise and spiritual lethargy and mediocrity within the American church? And I think we all probably agree, yeah, there is. This is something we need to watch out for. So chapter three, Moving forward, we won't read most of chapter 3, but I want to show you verse 12. Kind of a gruesome verse. It says, Thus says the Lord, As the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch 
and part of a bed. So there's kind of a, a deep cut here. Kind of, you, you really have to know your Bible to get verse 12. Exodus 22, there was a law in Israel that if you were a shepherd and one of your, the sheep you were tending got carried away by a wild animal, there was a way that you could prove to your boss, the man who owned the sheep, that you hadn't stolen that sheep. And that was you come back with whatever's remaining. If you come back and say, okay, here's, here's a couple of legs, you know, here's an ear, here's whatever, this is what's left of your sheep, then that was proof that you didn't steal the sheep and you wouldn't get fired, you wouldn't get fined, you wouldn't get thrown in prison. Amos, being a shepherd, would have known that law well. And what he's saying is, this is terrible to hear. That's what's going to happen to Israel. Israel's going to get snatched away by the big bad wolf of judgment. God's judgment is going to come, and the whole country is not going to be destroyed, but all that's going to be left is just a couple of legs, a piece of an ear, just a tiny remnant. You know, if you know the Old Testament, you know Old Testament history, that happened, that Israel, the ten tribes to the north, they got invaded by Assyria, and there's no more. I mean, there, there was a tiny remnant that stayed in the south or maybe a few who escaped and moved down to Judah. But, you know, by the time Jesus comes along, I, I doubt there was anybody who would say, I'm from one of those tribes because they just ceased to be. God's prophecy came true. He says, verse 13, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Now, what is Bethel? You probably uh, know about churches called Bethel Baptist or Bethel AME or whatever the case may be. Bethel, I'm sorry? Yeah, exactly. So when they formed that northern kingdom, when the split happened between north and south, we talked about this when we talked about Hosea, the Israelites to the north said, we don't want our people going on pilgrimage three times a year back to the temple in Jerusalem, because if they get down there, they'll get homesick, and they'll think, I'm going to move back here with my brothers in the south. So they built two temples up north. They built one in Bethel and one in Dan. And that was a couple of hundred years earlier. Since then, there were shrines all over the place in Israel. Now, if you really pay attention to the Old Testament, you know that God wanted you to worship one place and one place only in the Old Testament days. It's not like here where we have churches, we can, I mean, any church that preaches the gospel is a fine place to go. In Old Testament times, there was one place you went to sacrifice, and that was the temple in Jerusalem. And so for them to create these alternative temples was an abomination to God. And God's saying, you know, I'm finally going to, I've had it, I'm going to destroy those altars. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wipe them out. Now look what he says next, verse 15. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. And the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end. And you don't need to be a Bible scholar to know what that means. If you are wealthy enough to have a winter house and a summer house, he's not talking about the working class people here. He's talking about the upper class. You're going to, you've, you've been living high on the hog, and it's not going to be good for you what happens next. Your wealth won't save you. Now, he's about to get even more inflammatory. Chapter 4 is, is one of those chapters that I just have to shake my head. You know, there's a big difference between being a prophet and being pastor of a church. Any, any pastor who tried to preach to his congregation the way Amos preached to the people of Israel would not have a job for long. He wouldn't be a pastor very long. Um, 
And, and you'll see what, I'm, what I mean when I, I read this next passage. Chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. So who are the cows of Bashan? Bashan was an area of Israel that was very fertile in the northeastern part of the country. Um, and so we can imagine that the cattle there were a little fatter, a little, little more luxurious. He's calling the wealthy women of Samaria cows of Bashan, which I'm sure made him very popular. Why is he preaching against the women? Let's face it, no matter how... Uh, how disreputable any woman in that culture was, women didn't, in that time, didn't have the power to own land, didn't have the power to pay or not pay a worker. So why is he condemning these women? And say, well, number one, he's already condemned the men, but why has he turned his ire on these women? How did they crush the poor, in his words? Well, we don't know exactly, but maybe it was because their sense of entitlement, their neediness, their demands were what provoked their husbands to not pay their workers enough. You know, I've got, I've got to hold back some money to, you know, to give my wife the lifestyle she needs. Or, you know, I, I'm going to go ahead and, and steal this poor guy's land and the, and the courts will be on my side because I've got more money and that way you know, we can build another house for her and her friends to get together in and you know, play bunco or whatever. I, I doubt they had bunco back then, but you know what I mean. Um, and... Think about this. Perhaps it was also the charity they didn't offer. You know, a woman in those times had limited power, but if she had money, she could help. She could help the poor. That's one of the things that Proverbs 31 is about when it talks about the righteous woman. She helps the poor. And these women weren't doing that. God holds us accountable not just for the things we do, but for the things that we should do but don't do. And it's a good question. I mean, male or female, uh, whether we consider ourselves wealthy or not, the question we always need to ask ourselves when it comes to wealth is, do I serve God so that He'll give me more stuff, or do I use my stuff to serve God? That's a very important question. Do I serve God so He'll give me more stuff, or do I use my stuff to serve God? So when he talks about, they will lead you out with fish hooks. Believe it or not, archaeologists have found images and, and statues uh, from those times from Assyria, the country that would end up invading Israel. And the Assyrians were especially nasty people. And one of their habits was when they captured people, the way they led them back into captivity is they would put a hook through their nose or their lip, if you can imagine. So... I. I Amos is saying, you know, these women who have enough money, they're well-dressed, they look attractive now, but they're going to be treated like cattle. They're going to be herded off to Assyria because of the way they've lived. Um, that's what's coming, and it did happen. Now in verse 4, he says, Come to Bethel and transgress. Come to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, 
and proclaim freewill offerings, publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. He's saying, yeah, go ahead, go to your false temples, offer your sacrifices, do all this religious stuff. I don't care about any of it. It's not doing you any good. Go to Bethel and sin. Basically, imagine how uh, shocking it would be to hear a preacher say, come on to First Baptist Church and just show the Lord what an awful sinner you are. Every time you open your mouth to sing, every time you put money in that offering plate, every time you bow your head to pray, you're just reminding God what an awful sinner you are. That's not a good way to build a church, is it? That's not a good way to attract attendance. But Amos isn't worried about that. He wants them to see, he wants them to see, number one, you're not even worshiping the way God wanted you to. You're worshiping up here in these false temples instead of down in Jerusalem. Number two, your, your worship is all for show. When he says, go ahead and publish it, he's talking about what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 23 when he said the Pharisees like to blow trumpets whenever they give a, a tithe. It's all for show. And, and number three, it wasn't backed up by sincere lives. It, it, it's not... It, it's not acceptable to God to show up on Sundays wearing your best and pretending if you're not living it out the rest of the week. Now, that doesn't mean, please hear me, and I think y'all know this, that doesn't mean you have to be perfect to come into the house of God. By all means, the house of God is full of nothing but sinners, but repentant sinners, not, not people who are pride, prideful and arrogant, not people who deliberately mock God and then pretend to be holy. I mean, we should come on Sunday morning ready to be challenged in the presence of God. We should come in, into God's house with an attitude that says, Lord, thank you for letting me be here. Now tell me what I need to do. Show me what the next step is I need to take because I want to please you, Lord. And that's not the way the Israelites were living. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So a morally pure life and a life of love for your neighbor. If, you, if, if that's the life you're trying to live, then that's true religion. You know, what we do on Sunday mornings is important, but it's just the preparation for that other stuff. It's not the, it's not the, the main thing. I, I got to tell you, as much as I like to see people come on Sundays and want to see people on Sundays, I, I always remember, it's not like there's an angel in heaven taking role and saying, okay, one, one more spiritual point for that guy. Because what we do on Sundays is just practice and preparation for the real game, which takes place uh, Monday through Saturday. So let's finish up six, verses 6 through 13 of chapter 7, I'm sorry, chapter 4, and then we'll tackle the rest next week. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me. Cleanness of teeth. You know, a dentist would like that, wouldn't he? But that's not what he's talking about. Cleanness of teeth means your teeth are clean because you haven't had anything to eat. He goes on and says, verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied, yet you did not return to me. That's what he said in verse 6. Verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 9. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me. That's the third time he said that. 
I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me. That's four. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me. That's five. So what is he doing here? He's saying, I have sent little punishments on you, not uh, uh, an overarching nationwide punishment, but I, I've sent you times where part of the country would, would have hunger, and sometimes when there would be uh, failed crops, and sometimes when there would be uh, diseases and plagues and pandemics, and sometimes when there would be uh, invasions and, and defeats in battle and, and other kinds of judgment. I keep doing these things to get your attention because, because Deuteronomy 28 and 29. I know you and I don't have Deuteronomy 28 and 29 memorized, but they did. And that's what they were taught. And Deuteronomy 28 and 29 was a list that Moses gave the people of Israel and said, when you experience drought, when you experience famine, when you experience disease, when you experience military defeat and fire and all kinds of other terrible things, that's a sign that God is angry with you because of your sin. Because remember, Israel... And God had a special covenant. God doesn't have that covenant with us today, so we can't look at our circumstances and say, oh, well, you know, I, I had to go to the hospital this week, so God must be mad at me. That's not the way it works anymore. But with Israel, Moses told him ahead of time, your land is going to prosper, your land is going to have plenty, you're never going to have to worry about a thing, and if you start experiencing these things, that's God's way of trying to get your attention. Deuteronomy 28 and 29. And he's saying, yet you didn't listen, you didn't return to me. I kept sending you these smaller judgments. You knew that that's what this was about, and yet you didn't return to me. Again, don't translate to our, that to our day, because in our day, our covenant with God is different. We live in a sinful world, and all of us suffer in various ways, and it's not necessarily a punishment from God. Sometimes it's just part of living in a sinful world. I, I will say, side note, when we do go through hard times, we always should ask God, God, what are you trying to teach me through this? Is there some way I'm bringing this on myself? But we're not Israel. We don't have the same covenant with Him. The point is, God was trying to get their attention and they weren't listening. Now that is applicable to our lives. Are we listening to what God is saying to us through His Word, through His Holy Spirit, through the many ways He speaks? So let's finish up with verse 12. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel... Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. So many of you know that the first church I ever pastored was the church I grew up in, which was interesting. Um, little bitty country church. Everybody there had known me since I was born. And here I was, 26 years old, trying to lead these people, which, yeah, that was fun and, and frustrating at the same time. But the first funeral I ever did was for a man named Trav, who I'd known my whole life, and I'd never seen him in church in my life. Not even Easter or Christmas. So you can imagine that was a tough funeral to do. I had you know, no reason to believe that Trav was in heaven, so I had to come up with you know, what to say in that situation. And not long after that, I went to visit one of Trav's sisters, who was a member of the church. She was in the nursing home. And uh, I hadn't seen her since I was a kid. And so I went to the nursing home and had to wake her up. Um, she sat up in bed and said, who are you? And I said, well, Blanche, I'm Jeff. Uh, you know, I'm Homer and Betty's son. I'm Cecil and Marie's grandson. And she goes, 
She looked at me real close and she goes, well, Jeff, you ain't no bigger than nothing. <laughs> and I said, yeah, thanks for pointing that out, Blanche. Um, and I said, did you know that I was the pastor of the church now? And, oh, I didn't know that. And we talked for a while. And so finally I said, you know, Blanche, I, I, I'm real, real sorry uh, about, about Trav, your brother. And all she said was, well, prepare to meet thy God. And that's all she said. And I thought, wow, that's uh, not what I expected to hear, but it is true. Blanche's words were true. Every day of our lives, we need to be ready to meet our God because we don't know when it'll happen. And we're fools if we live in such a way that we say, yeah, you know, once I get my kids raised or once I get, you know, to a certain level of income or once I get, you know, once I'm able to retire, or once this happens, then I'll serve him with all my heart because we may never get to that point. The time to serve him is now. Prepare to meet your God. So let me lead us in prayer. Thank you all for your patience and attention. Be careful coming down those steps. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for loving us enough to tell us the hard truth. And I pray that we would look carefully at our lives. And I know it's our tendency to hear things like this and think of others who need to hear it when the truth is we, we need to hear it. I pray that we would live each day ready to meet with you. Thank you for your grace. For we know, Lord, that Jesus has paid it all for us. And so we're forgiven in your sight. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.